Hello, welcome to another episode of Sounds Like Comics, the podcast devoted to all things comic books in movies and TV. I'm Luke. And I'm Jay. Welcome to the podcast. Today's topic, Mission Impossible, the one that started it all back in 1996. It stars Tom Cruise, John Voigt, Henry Cerny, Emmanuel Buart, Jean Reno, Ving Rhames, Kristen Scott Thomas and Vanessa Redgrave. This is your warning. We will be talking spoilers. And yeah, I mean, what a franchise this has become. Like Tom Cruise, you know, he's really, this has become the franchise he can hang his hat on. But it all started with this. Brian De Palma, you know, Scarface, Untouchables, big name Hollywood director to kick it all off. And Man, do they kick it off. There's so many iconic shots from this movie that it's it's hard to really think like how we got where like it, from it being here to where it was like, oh, they're doing a Mission Impossible movie. That's strange to where we are today of like, oh, the new Mission Impossible, they're working on that. And then you start you're hearing a year or two in advance of like, they're doing this stunt. And Tom Cruise nearly killed himself again. Like it's, it, it yeah. all started all the way back then. It's a different thing now to what it was then. I mean, I didn't realize until doing prep for this that the first Mission Impossible film is actually a continuation of the 1966 TV series of the same name in its 1988 sequel series. And this film Canonically, is set six years after the 88 series. It's a first oh, wow. installment in the film series, but it started as being a continuation, which really surprised me. I, I had no idea. And apparently, originally what they were going to look at doing is having characters and the actors back from the TV series in the opening in this film, but they'd all get killed off. Yeah, that was so the idea the of idea. killing off the team off the get-go was always there, which is funny because some of the biggest names in the movie is that original team, Kristen Scott Thomas and Emilio Estevez. And, uh, you know, these actors, you're like, and so when the movie, you know, it but gets that's this that team though. Sequence. Yeah. But originally it was going to be the characters and the actors coming back from the 60s and 80s and they were going to get killed off. But they do something different. I mean, Emilio Estevez, he opens this movie. We all know Emilio Estevez. Here he is as Jack Harmon, an IMF agent. He's a technician that's helping Philip's team. He dies. He yeah. dies in the opening of this movie. Unfortunately, like I mean, they got him because he was a bit of a name. He'd had young guns and various other things, and audiences would have found it shocking, which they did. But unfortunately for Estevez, like it was a bit of a while before he got to do something after this, especially the size of this film so it was almost like this film ended up being the end of that particular part of his career 
Yeah, and it's they do a really efficient thing at the start of this movie, like when they're doing the 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 team like briefing for what the f- initial mission will be. Um, you know, Mini Westfest is right at the start. They're in Kiev. He's watching, and he's like, "Come on, come on!" She's been under too long. He's one of the first faces you see, but also that whole uh, of them going through the mission, like you need to drive these streets, they're confusing, and going through who and who, and like he's giving her the tech, and like can hear me, and she doesn't have an earpiece yet because she hasn't rem- remembered yet, like, and you can see the camaraderie. It's done so quickly, but you immediately can see how comfortable this team is. They've clearly worked together for quite a while. Um, yeah, which also helps sell the think the thought that none of them you're not expecting any of them to die. It's brilliantly handled. Like even now watching it, I know it's coming, but I, I still keep having that thought of like, I can't believe they killed all these people off. Which is exactly the response that they wanted audiences to have. I mean, again, this movie directed by Brian De Palma. We all know who who that is. But when this movie was being made, it'd been a while since he'd had a big commercial hit. So I guess he thought this would be a safe bet. I mean, he'd already done a movie that used to be a TV series with The Untouchables. So from that, which I believe was also Paramount, to this, it seemed a bit of a safe bet. But at the same time, He's bringing his A game here. It's not like, you know, hey, this is just going to be a quick cash grab. Like he put so much into this film, like with like the stunts, the set pieces. So this very much is a Brian De Palma film. But what's interesting though is that we know Tom Cruise, the producer. This was his first film that he produced, and he had a producing partner. So Cruz founded Cruz Wagner Productions, and then this, again, was the first movie that came out, and then so many movies after this, you would see those two names together. But there'd been numerous efforts by Paramount Pictures to create a film adaption of the TV series, but it wasn't until Cruz Wagner came along that they actually had something. Development initially began with filmmaker Sidney Pollock. So again, like they're not just going to anybody here. They're like, right, we want a seasoned, known director that's going to start off this franchise. It didn't work out with him, so instead they had Brian De Palma with a script by David Kep. And De Palma, he also designed most of the action sequences, as I said, and Cruz did most of his own stunts. And because of that, because they worked so closely together, director and star, and on that, it was always an ensemble. And we got to see that in later films, and Estevez is in it until he isn't, and other characters come in and out of it. But unlike the TV series, this is an Ethan Hunt movie. This is a Tom Cruise film. And in later films, I mean, Mission Impossible 2 is still an Ethan Hunt, Tom Cruise film, but it does become more of an ensemble. But to begin with, this film, it 
it started off being something so different from what the TV show was. Apparently, stars from the show didn't like this film. Many reasons, but one they didn't like that it was focused on one sole character. But going back to De Palma and Cruz, the budget for this film, right? Because again, the director and he was devising a lot of the stunts. The star is doing a lot of his own stunts. So there's money that can be saved there. This really surprised me. So again, we're going back to what was it, 1996? This film had a budget of 80 million. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you look at the most recent Mission Impossible films, they're not costing 80 million. At the box office, it went on to make 457.7 million. This yeah. movie was an absolute hit. I'm not surprised. Um, the opening sequence, the opening mission, um, when Tom Cruise is running running across the bridge and it's in Prague, he slides to like shock stop as the the car explodes, the car bomb goes off. That is very Brian De Palma. Um, the I guess maybe the, even the tragedy of it all, very Brian De Palma of like he thinks he's he's pushed he's he's pushed it even though it was called off. Everything goes wrong, even more wrong. Uh, and then you know the the catching up with Kittredge in the restaurant afterwards to kind of debrief him and talk, start to get him out of there. Um, I actually know for a fact that restaurant doesn't exist; has never existed. It wasn't even uh, like an ex- a, a, a dressed up building that was in a square, which they built that up because they had to destroy it. And they couldn't do that to a building because in Prague, of course, they're all historically registered. That's it, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, like the fish tank, the fish tank, but they only had one one shot. They could only do it once because they'd have to replace all that glass and everything if they didn't get it in that one take. Uh, so that's like well done for being so prepared that you got it. Um, also, fish tank, uh, you'll notice that the fish aren't flopping on the ground. They weren't live fish. They were dead fish. Because that would have the, uh, the um, not Peter, but the equivalent back then on the case if yeah. that had been the thing. But it's so kind of, and that was they probably put a big part of the budget into that shot specifically. It's because, in the trailers. It was yeah. in in the trailers. But yeah, you're right. It was shot across two locations. The exterior was shot in Prague's Old Town Square, and then it was yeah. a makeshift restaurant that they that they did the interiors but that was the thing you know and they now you've not seen mission impossible dead reckoning part one yet no and i've got to be honest i I'm, do know from the trailer kittredge is back he is back and i don't know i'm not if I, do you know, there's gonna be no spoilers for that movie i'm not going to do that to you i mean i watched it and loved it and it just and for me it just seems like the movie came out and there were so many movies, like big movies, like just back to back. We've had, you know, Barbie and Oppenheimer and all these other movies, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, that everybody was talking about Mission Impossible and then they weren't because they're talking about all these other big movies that have come out as well. 
So yeah. I just wanted to continue the conversation, like talking about Mission Impossible, and I thought it was a good opportunity to go back and review the first movie from '96. But there is dialogue that is mirrored in Dead Reckoning between Ethan and Kitteridge about being upset. You've not yeah. seen me upset. And then he's got the obviously the chewing gum, he puts it on the glass, it explodes, you know. So it happens in that first movie, and they kind of touch on it, it's like a homage to it in in the new movie. But the yeah. whole thing that's happening in this is yeah, he's been he's been framed. I mean, the effects are are fantastic. Like they they really are. I mean, the trick with the disappearing, reappearing CD again, 90s, that Ethan does to fool Franz, who is a Jean Reno character. It's not a camera trick or any of the visual effects, but a genuine sleight of hand trick. And that comes back again in Dead Reckoning also, where they've got crews doing sleight of hand. They've got him doing magic, which they could have done it digitally. But what they were doing in this first De Palma movie all the way back in, you know, to the most recent Christopher McQuarrie movie, is where possible, they're not using any VFX or CGI. If they can yeah. do it on screen, even if it takes them all day or however many days, they're going to do it as a practical effect. And it really goes, it, it, it goes so far because we're getting these big stunts and you know that they're having to use VFX to re- remove safety harnesses on crews and all that kind of stuff. But where possible, there's no trickery. Like they've got crews himself or other characters actually doing the tricks. And it goes yeah. such such a long way. But in this movie, like what we all know from Mission Impossible is the masks. Yeah. This is the only film in the series to do the mask removal scene with entirely practical effects. Every other film have used VFX. So this one, it looks a bit sillier. But it's on the back of that TV series. So it's okay. Yeah. And it yeah, and, you and know, it's not it's, just that. It's because that you know that's why you get it's actually good that they did it first up because they have a visual effect reference because they always when they go to take one off it pulls down to get some a proper grip and the way the stretches before they and whip it off you know in all the later ones the visual effects that's the look it's got to have we had a practical thing this is how practical mask works and here it goes um and also you know these are supposed to be fooling people you can tell uh in the kiev mission that's tom cruise under uh with the moustache and the cigar and stuff. You can tell he's the senator. Absolutely. Playing also the senator, in, the actual senator in the interview because it's the same mask, it's the same special effects because he's got to resemble the guy he's supposed to be selling perfectly. Their technology is supposed to be that advanced and that good. Um, of course you're going to do it digitally now. They do it with Black Widow in the Marvel movies when she has that digital mask uh, shroud thing which i've got to that's got to be stolen from mission impossible but it's always been the thing so you know i get it but yeah the practical effects it work. works though it, it does work but, but you're right like when when you've got ethan pretending to be other people you can tell 
<laughs> it is Tom Cruise, and he himself is wearing a mask. Like, and he's yeah. he's acting like a different person. Whereas what they do in in you know the second film onwards, it's a completely different actor. And then as they're pulling off the mask, it'll cut to Tom Cruise. Yeah. But in this film, they fully committed, like they would have done in the old series, to have an actor pretend to be another character. Yeah. Um, I think you lose something by doing it the other way. I, I get for the audience, like, we know what the shtick is. But I do, and I've got to imagine for the actors as well, it's more interesting when they actually have to act like someone else. It's harder when they're trying to act like an another actor who's also in the movie. Uh, because they, you know, the audience has a direct frame of reference, but you know, I, I get why they do it the way they do now. But that's something I've always appreciated for for this original is you know, those were the, the actors in goofy makeup. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I just want to take us back, right? So the film it received mixed to positive reviews from critics, with praise for the action sequences, De Palma's direction, and Cruz's performance but criticism for the convoluted plot. I mean, come on. <laughs> we come to Mission Impossible films for the convoluted plot. You just yeah. you just go with it. But what's interesting, though, it was also negatively received by cast members of the original series. For instance, actor Greg Morris, who had starred in the original series, unfortunately, he died a few months after the film's release, but he called the film an abomination. And this is going back to what I was saying before, how it had always been an ensemble and it looked like they were doing a different thing. This was going to be a Tom Cruise franchise, but it ended up becoming an ensemble because we got Simon Pegg, Ving Rhimes, who is in this. He comes back as Luther in every single Mission Impossible film. He's the only other actor other than Tom Cruise to be in all of them. But this film, yeah. it grossed 457.7 million worldwide, making it the third highest grossing film of 1996. While the dance rendition of the original theme song by Larry Mullen Jr. and Adam Clayton became a top 10 hit internationally, it was nominated for the Grammy Award for the Best Pop instrumental performance that i didn't know but after we finish recording i will be looking that up on youtube i need to see this <laughs> yeah but i do remember absolutely. the composer on this film was danny elfman which yeah. really caught me by surprise but i remember like i was i was into this film when it came out i had it on vhs and before that the the theme got released on tape cassette and I remember buying the single and just <laughs> listening to it on cassette. I am that old over and over. I mean, and Danny Elfman, like we don't need to go through his credits. We all know who Danny Elfman was, but before yeah. him, Alan Silvestri was originally hired to score this movie and had written roughly 23 minutes of music before he was taken off. He recycled the material he had written and used it for the score to Eraser, the Arnie film from 96. But there is a bootleg version of his Mission Impossible score in circulation. So maybe eBay, somewhere like that, you might be able to 
get a copy but it was i wonder if it's found its way onto uh, youtube because i'd love to hear what he did yeah or maybe yeah maybe it probably is but danny elfman uh, and this is very different because you think tim burton you know whether it's batman beetlejuice edward scissorhands but in nine or even men in black yeah which that was what 97 yes right after this so this is very different this is very different. You get the signature Mission Impossible theme. I love how these films open like a TV show, and it yeah. shows you what's going to be happening in the movie, which is quite unusual. Yeah, but it's what you'd get in a TV. Yeah, opening. Yeah, but and it's also like it happens so fast and out of context that you just like wait, wait, what? You don't have time to process it because. The movie's about to start. You can't be thinking, oh, I wonder what that's going to be. Like, no, it's a flash and you, it's a blink and you'd miss it. Like, it's, and, you know, again, like I said, it's the, how the TV started. Like, you have to be, uh, it's based off that franchise. You need it in there. Absolutely. And, and with the with the TV series, so you've got John Voigt as Jim Phelps. So he's the leader of the IMF team and Ethan's mentor. Phelps is the only character from the original series to appear in this movie, but of course, you know, a different actor. So that's why, again, missing the TV series like I did, fans of that show would have been shocked. Like, we're shocked at Emilio Estevez dying in the opening, but fans (laughs) of the TV series would be shocked at the character Jim Phelps, who they would know. Being the villain, like he's the one that is behind it all. So I think that might have turned a few people off, and maybe that's what turned uh, the cast off. You know that but why this, they the, were against it. He gives his reasoning for it, though. Like he says, you know, when he's trying to blame Kittredge, but Tom Cruise, like Ethan's putting it together, yeah, of like what happened on that original mission, how it happened, uh, and he's like, why why would he like saying like why would jim but he's like why why would kittredge but what he's really saying is like why would you do it jim and he's like think about it, it was inevitable the cold war's over you're irrelevant like and you're only on this much money a year like you know like the government's running the country without you how dare they like yeah it's like this is someone who was important and relevant and now he's like you know uh obsolete uh tech he's an obsolete role in a world that you know come the 90s was in peacetime where they they were only doing little little bits little strange things here and there like small stuff not like we're saving the world from the russians like it would have been in the 80s when the original series was set and in the 60s when the series original original that had leonard nimoy out when he uh post star trek like yeah so 60s and then 80s i mean yeah i mean yeah you're right you know you do buy by his motivations and john voight you know he plays it really well you know, it always makes me laugh he, you know in the later films as well like whenever they refer to the imf team and you've always got that one person that imf what's that and then <laughs> with a straight face the character says the impossible mission force yeah it's like it's just it's ridiculous because i mean again like this first movie a budget of 80 million and the budgets that these 
you know, the, the later movies have. And I do think this film, the latest film, unfortunately, the timing might have been a little bit off. And that's why it's yeah. a little bit out the box office. But still, people turn out to these movies and, and they, they watch them as serious films. Like, obviously not like, you know, Oscar-winning movies, but they, you know, big summer blockbuster entertainment. But IMF, you can throw that around all you like, but it does stand for Impossible Mission Force, which is ridiculous, but I love it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, unless uh, they have a space force, come on. Like, it's not I mean, that yes. far out of here. <laughs> that's, um, that's true. But um, in this, we mentioned him a couple of times, Ving Rhymes as Luther Stickel. He is so good. He is a disavowed IMF agent, a skilled computer hacker, and he's recruited by Ethan to assist him. And again, not just in this film, he comes back in all the other films, the the producers cast uh, Ving Rhames as Luther because they felt he was the opposite of what a hacker normally looks like. And on that, I'm assuming they mean in TV and film, because absolutely, he was yeah. a very different look for that type of character. And from each film, I think his portrayal, that character has just gone from strength to strength to the point where him and Ethan have such a solid connection and bond and you can trace it back to this first movie. Yeah, and like the if it makes you feel better, Luther, I always think of you as disreputable. <laughs> like Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, whenever he's deep in the crap, which is like every movie, let's be honest. And also in every movie, it turns out to be someone at the IMF who's like like to blame or some other government shtick. Like but it just works, you know, like they have the chemistry right off the bat. Um, they are very different. Like, you, especially, you know, Luther is the tech, like support um, hacker, like Overwatch would we'd be kind of that mission, uh, like code name for his role um, against like the front man, the guy having to do all the ridiculous things, um, all the stuff that he like, like you can't have that many people with that kind of diverse training. Um, sleight of hand magic, marksmanship, um, acting and infiltration, charisma, all the other bits and pieces that they'd require. Um, you know, Jeremy Renner when he pops up into the movies is of that ilk. Uh, but you always have like the group, you know, Simon Pegg comes in and he's been in like all of them since he's popped up and he's more of that. Uh, support guy helping him out. Uh, they always and there's usually another like field agent. I think John Renault fills that role. Like he's the guy with Ethan when they go and do that iconic scene, like hanging above the desk uh, in CIA headquarters. Uh, and then you have uh, and that's Rebecca it. Ferguson in in the later films. John Reno in this story, yeah. So he's he's in the vent. There's the rap is freaked out. It's affecting what Ethan is doing down below. You know, on that, going back to Cruz doing his own stunts, I mean, that's the famous scene, isn't it? That yeah. and the helicopter in the tunnel, but the this is the this is the main scene. 
that people remember from that first movie. You've got Ethan, he's dropping from the ceiling, he's hovering inches above the ground. But what was happening for Cruz, his head kept hitting the floor. Do you know how we solved that particular problem? He had the idea, he put coins in his shoes for balance. And it stopped. Oh, to add his, a little bit more weight down there. Just to, just to weigh down his feet. Yeah. And that's, that's smart. He's because you do smart. see he's he's his angle because they have to suspend him from his hip, but yeah, your your torso, your head weighs, you know, like eight pounds. Like it is probably the heaviest single portion of your entire body. Your, your your center of mass isn't your belly button. Or maybe it is, but you know, they're attaching from your hip, which is generally below your head belly button. But yeah. Like it works. It's so I can't. So an anytime million, someone does a, a, a an, dangling infiltration <laughs> yeah, scene, but they do eight, a version of this. An eighteen million budget movie. You're putting coins in your shoes. That's how you're yeah. solving the problem. <laughs> yeah. Between yeah. the director and the and the star, that's how they're solving that particular problem. But then you've got the you know the helicopter in the tunnel. I mean that train sequence. It took six weeks to film and they shot it at the 007 stage at Pinewood Studios and that as well another iconic scene where the helicopter the blade is circling and the helicopter crashes Ethan is in front of the train the blade stops just before it hits his throat there's a train conductor who faints yeah <laughs> it's such a great great moment and that's where the movie that's where the movie ends you know the good guys win but it's it's such a different thing isn't it so i mean again we keep saying this movie came out in 96 mission impossible 2 which was directed by john woo, john woo. that came out Four years later, that came out in 2000. And I remember like what they were saying, like Tom Cruise would be the constant. He would always come back as Ethan Hunt, but it would be a different director. Like John De Palma with his first movie, John Woo would bring his own particular style. And then with the third movie, J.J. Abrams, and then the fourth, Brad Bird. And then the fifth onwards, it's being Chris McQuarrie. So obviously they've changed direction there. Yeah, the, but, but the difference there, yeah. like, as someone over COVID binged all of the movies um, back to back to back um, for was it uh, so six films? Whatever the yeah, um, Mission Impossible Two is the only one that stands out. It's Absolutely. So, stylistically different from all the rest like even when you look at De Palma and Abrams in number three they do have different styles but the consistency of the plot and other bits and pieces there is like they have the team around a more of a team around him again in number three as they did in number one um and it was a more it was a the 90s like action drama versus early 2000s action drama like the doors the, the choices like it was seamless when i watched all of them everyone but number two like so you know with jj abrams and then uh brad bird and that even those like, stylistically talking there wasn't a huge difference if you know those directors you can spot their signature 
but from one three onwards they really do feel of a type but they and changed think- their approach didn't they? and that's what happened like from one to two they had an idea of what they were going to do but again a four-year gap this film was a hit in 96 but then obviously they they changed it up when it was i did a full rewatch ahead of watching dead reckoning part one and for the first time ever the same night back to back i did mission impossible one and then two i've never done that before it's even more noticeable when you it is, watch it yeah. like that. See, so it's a very, it's a very different thing. So you know, when we're looking at things that we can review on the podcast, is there a comics angle? And Mission Impossible, there is. Have you heard there plenty? Well, there's not been too many, but the ones that they have, it's under Paramount Comics. They only ah. ran for about two years. And they one of the things they put out was a comic book prequel. And it was a short-lived imprint of Marvel Comics. They didn't do too many comics, to be honest. And the ones that they did, they were crossovers. So, of course, they had this. Rob Liefeld did the cover. He may have even have done the interiors as well, I can actually but another see it in thing. My mind's eye. I've, I've there you go. <laughs> but another thing they did was a Star Trek X Men one shot crossover, and that was written by Scott Lobdell and also came out in 1996. So again, Mission Impossible absolutely sounds like comics. It qualifies for the podcast. There's also a uh, a Dynamite Comics short lived Mission Impossible series. I think it ran for like a year or so. Ah, really? I'll have to yeah. I'll have to check that out. But if you're going to rate this film out of five, for me, this is an easy five. Um, it is iconic. You cannot make a spy espionage thriller these days without like looking at this. The set pieces, uh, the cast, um, everything about it. This is how you launch a franchise. They've seemed to have forgotten it. Uh, with recent attempts from various different studios, but the music, the cast, the stunts, everything about it, I, I never get tired of this movie. It's as good to me now as it was when I first saw it. How about yourself? I agree with everything you just said there. I love this film. It is an easy five. and I reckon we should make our way through two, three, four. We'll get to them. Not in the next handful of episodes, but we (laughs) will get to them because I love Mission Impossible as a franchise and I love this film. Well, that's it for our episode all about Mission Impossible. If you'd like to contact us about this episode or suggest a topic for an upcoming episode, you can find us on Facebook as Sounds Like Comics Podcast. You've been listening to Luke and Jay, the guys from Sounds Like Comics. See you soon.